Okay, so here we are with Tom Barbelay. It is a fine day in May in 2015, and we're doing a Levity Zone catch-up on our many lives together, uh, going back 15 years almost. Uh, I think more, yes, kind of, it's nearly 20. It's 90, 95 is 20, right? 95 so, is, yeah. Yeah, so Biota 2, I think, was when I first started communicating with you. Maybe even through, in the lead-up to Biota 2, which would have been 96. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yes, Noble Ape is nearly 20, and yes, it's been 20 years, Bruce. That's wonderful. So, <laughs> this is a different topic for Levity Zoners, because it's uh, going to be about things that are not way out, story, vision, space... Speak for yourself, Bruce. Oh. <laughs> so it's not going to be nerdy then? I don't know. It'll, uh, the thing that interests me about this, and we discussed it, so some background history in, in probably the last nine years, Bruce and I have periodically recorded podcasts. And I think certainly my time recording Bruce has given me a clear indication that uh, when we get together, we typically have good rapping sessions. Have a good rapping. So get ready for a good rap. Yes. Yeah, so we um, we came together a mutual passion for artificial life. I'm wearing a shirt. Oh yes. From the artificial life uh, twelve conference in Od- Odense, Denmark, 2010. Yes, which is the one you attended. It's yeah. one I attended, and they actually had me organize a session, which was shocked, mm. shocked me because I was fairly new mm. to the community. Uh, but um, this fascination, I mean, for me, I think started uh, when I was a kid, but when I read about Chris Langton's work yes. in the 90s, early 90s, in the 80s, yes, um, you know, this whole idea of a new alchemy. And I came to it from a different angle, but certainly coming to Chris Langton's work, I reflect on a seminal book, which I actually should have brought with me to show you, which is called Write Your Own Computer Fantasy Games on Your Microcomputer, which came uh-huh. out in 1982. So I had a background history and interest in fantasy worlds and in the kind of visionary, some parts, some of the psychedelic elements. It was just an amazing ability to create a perspective on, you know, what could be. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it in contrast, I think, to science fiction of a kind of projection of the future. Right, because you could actually, in science fiction, we can mostly not not see how it's going to get built, but yeah. us nerds with <laughs> microprocessors and memory and everything climbing up yeah. the scale, we could say, wait a minute, we could actually build this thing. Well, if you can imagine, from a very early age, I was interested in writing rule sets for these fantasy games, mm-hmm. and which was really the precursor to artificial life. So tens of pages of neatly written notes of charts of percentages of dice rolls associated with how to simulate these fantasy environments, but very much with the nature of actually describing them, which I guess is part of podcasting as well, um, of, of kind of the narrative element of describing a projected reality. And through that, I got an interest in mathematics and writing and kind of systematizing worlds. And then this book, Write Your Own computer fantasy games and i was already interested in computers but this made me realize ah so the stuff i've been doing to date with books you write in computer programs with computer programming languages that i was already interested in and then you create the fantasy worlds within the computer Hmm. and one of my favorite examples of this because i was still very much writing these computer programs down moving from from writing game rules to writing computer programs is i took a trip 
into Central Australia with my high school group. Yeah, Tom's Australian, if you can... <laughs> oh, Tom's accent is not sort of, from my mind, traditional brogue South Australian. South Australia, a very particular area of South Australia is where part of my accent comes from. Okay. And then my travels come from the rest. So, yes, I listen to South Australian gardening programs, call in talkback South Australian gardening programs to get some of the twinges of the accent. That, to uh, get the twinges of the accent. Yeah. Ah. Anyway... <laughs> So, travelling with a, a bus full of teenagers towards Central Australia, I was coming down with some horrible kind of bronchial infection at the time. But at the same point, looking at the landscapes and furiously scribbling code into a notebook. Hmm. So, eventually, kind of halfway towards Central Australia, I had to be put in a hospital for my grandparents to come and collect me. But somewhere through that period of time, I sent this notebook to a friend in Canberra, Australia, or at least a friend's father, and he typed it in. And he saw the landscapes unfold oh. in terms of me just writing the vector code to create it. And he said, what are these strange disc-like things? And I said, well, they're the UFOs, of course, that fly over this alien landscape. Now, were you on morphine at the time? No, it was funny, actually, because it was kind of that pre... That was It was through a kind of fever... It was that fever lull where right. you kind of return, right. and I was furiously writing more and more code. But this notion of physically writing code rather than typing it in... I think taught me a different kind of programming, like a programming of robustness, of caution, these kind of things. Mm. Mm. And then, obviously, having done this for a certain number of years in Canberra, Australia, I discovered through... Canberra has a number of, well, three major universities, but it also has the National University. And one of the wonderful things associated with university towns is that they have bookshops. So I found through uh, the bookshop, uh, it was an academic remainders bookshop, so stuff that wasn't selling or they could get cheaply, a series of books on artificial life. Hmm. And I realized that there was actually a community of people who, for a variety of different reasons, many of them studying biology, some of them through physics, these kind of folk, had crea started creating these rich environments, but very much associated with looking at problems in movement, problems in reproduction, fitness functions, hmm. the existing biology. Whereas my perspective was... It's about creating these rich kind of fantasy universes. Mm. So through this period of time, I also met a seminal fellow in Australia who was like a VR guy. He was like a VR evangelist. And previously, in terms of my software writing, aside from games, mm. I also wrote antiviral software and then compiler software. The antiviral software was used for a short period of time by, I guess it's the equivalent of probably the, not the State Department, maybe the Department of Justice here or something like that, or the Attorney General's Department. I had this background in writing antiviral software. I'd written compilers and interpreters, one of which was actually used at Edinburgh University and, you know, a variety of little bits and pieces of software. And the early, kind of prior to the internet, there was this thing called bulletin boards, ah. which kind of created a, a worldwide map of super nerds where you could put your software up and, and it was a dial-up connection. Dial connection. They were so, peer to peer, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you had to write small bits of software that just kind of captured what you were working on, be it antiviral, be it vector graphics. So I had all these little bits and pieces of software. And then through this, I came to a realization probably when I was about 19 that I needed to bring this all together. And there was this existing community, this existing artificial life community that were doing a bunch of other things, but I could create in large part, and this is very much a Daimerian theme, through the toolkit that I generated up until that point, <laughs> I could create this thing called Noble Ape. And when I created it, what interested me was actually the launch process. Now, the, the, the word noble ape, 
I mean, how's for our listeners? Oh, okay. So originally, this is interesting. So originally, the project was called Nirvana, Mm. and it was called Nirvana up until about 2000, when uh, ex Microsoft fellow wanted to buy the Nirvana.com domain name, and there was various wranglings, but I realized that... This is the, for the band Nirvana? No, this is N-E-R-V-A-N-A. He had a... Oh, Nirvana. He had, yeah. a, he had an idea, and he wanted to use Nirvana.com, and I thought, this is silly that I have this fixation associated with the name when the creatures within the simulation were always noble apes. A noble ape, in my own thinking, comes, I guess, through somewhere through the 90s, the early 90s, uh, the noble apes predate Nirvana in my own thinking. Mm-hmm. They were more a kind of philosophical view of what would happen if you took humans and you eliminated certain aspects like lying and narcissism and could there be a noble ape through this? Ah. So the so image we of the all noble came ape, from bonobos and exactly. Of well, yeah, yeah, something. Uh, yeah, I mean, is there is there like potentially some shift? And this was here very much philosophical musing as opposed to applied simulation. But, uh, so yes, in 96, I put all this software that I'd been developing into this thing, which was originally called Nirvana, but now obviously it's called Noble Amp. And, uh, I set up a launch where I contacted a bunch of people, including a fellow by the name of Douglas Rushkoff, mm-hmm. who's a media theorist, who's through his career has been a media theorist. And I had some early communication with him associated with the history of computers, actually, um, uh, because he wrote a book called Siberia. Mm. In which, and certainly in the early editions, he spelt, he spelt Steve Jobs' name incorrectly and there were various inconsistencies. So as I read it as a kind of passionate late teenager, having grown up on the stories of Captain Crunch and Steve Wozniak and all these kind yeah. of things, I was in, impassioned that this fellow had gotten so many things slightly wrong <laughs> in his Siberia and contacted him and realized that there was actually a human being behind the book. And, you know, full of a wide variety of things that were going on in parallel as he wrote Siberia. And he said to me that this, this Nirvana thing, this Noble Ape thing, could actually be quite inspirational and quite interesting. And early on, actually, I had contacts with uh, astronomers and meteorologists and a bunch of different folk who all saw this idea of creating a simulation. I should probably actually introduce what the simulation's about. You have a rich ecosystem, a landscape environment. It was originally built out of Fourier waves, but mm. then I moved on to fractals. And there is a biological simulation that provides um, plants, various animals that they can eat and interact with. Uh, and then obviously you have the noble apes themselves and you have a cognitive simulation, which rather than being based on neural networks, was again based on some tinkering I did with Petri dish simulation, watching bacterial growth. I formed Noble Ape just with those ideas. I released it mm. open source initially before open source was open source mm. and sent, you know, and started receiving correspondence and emails. And there was kind of a mailing list and a website and things that went on along parallel. And about this point, you were doing Biota One. Mm. So you had moved away for folks listening, the artificial life, the academic artificial life of Chris Langton and, and, you know, Tom uh, Ray, Tom Ray, and Mark Badeau, and these kind of names is a thing in and of itself. And then you have this hobbyist community, mm-hmm. which, as I did, come to it perhaps through writing fantasy games, perhaps through a variety of different areas. People that are interested in strange robotic movement. There's a lot of stuff going on in the hobbyist community, which is far broader. And Bruce took that vision, I think, in part through some of the stuff that you were looking at with avatars. 
and decided that there was a kind of broader community that could come in. And then you had, you know, wonderful people like Richard Dawkins and Douglas Adams and Mm -hmm. all these kind of seminal thinkers in their own areas coming in and lending their own kind of humour and insight uh, to to these conferences at the time. And when I heard about Biota 1, I thought, I've got to do whatever it takes to get to Biota 2. Like, this is like... A calling that is going out over the mm-hmm. over the planet uh-huh. to bring people together. Bring people. I would have gone to Biota and helped with the setup. I would have, uh, you know, checked microphone leads. I would have done whatever it would have taken to get there. In fact, a local internet magazine in Australia offered to sponsor me. I had various other folk that wow. were looking forward to getting me there. It's funny enough, my story is very similar to Will Wright. Will Wright had a similar experience. So the problem with Biota 2 was it had existed as a beacon so well from the first Biota to the second that everyone in the world who was doing stuff like this wanted to go there. Mm. And they sold out of tickets. There were various people that got in. I think they had a small number of scholarships. But Steve Graham, the poor organiser of Biota 2, was so completely overwhelmed by a melee of people who wanted to come. And Will Wright and I were part of that melee, and we just didn't get in. Mm. So, mm. Bruce, this was my early correspondence with Bruce was this pleading. Is 1997-98. Yeah. Yeah. Pleading to find any possible way that I could come to, uh, I think it was in Cambridge from memory. It was in Magdalen College, Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. To get there. And unfortunately, I couldn't. I submitted a variety of written proposals. I offered to sweep mm. and things like that. <laughs> it, it, by any means necessary, but yes, I just couldn't get there. And I think this was the start of the communication, but also through that kind of angst period, probably a pleading for plurality in the Mm. future biota. And I think what was interesting, actually, was, and even Steve Grant was removed from this, there was a kind of conference bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And then there were the kind of visionary thinkers that wanted the conference to be as open as possible. But unfortunately, it was just a first in... It was a... Sponsored by CyberLife, it sort of became yes. a corporate event. Yes. So then there was a, yeah. <laughs> and then Biota 3 in yes. San Jose. Yes. Yeah. Which is very curious. Now I live within easy walking distance from San Jose State. I walk around it frequently thinking about, you know, what was it, in 99, 98? In, uh, 99. Yeah, 99. Yeah. Because I was traveling at the time, otherwise I would have attended. Mm-hmm. And by the time Biota 3 comes around, and I have all the video footage of Biota 3, you have these amazing workshops which are just packed with people mm-hmm. looking at virtual worlds and how can you make yeah. them more organic and all this kind of stuff. And it's interesting, actually, because it's a it's a kind of cyclically reoccurring topic. Mm. But you can go back to Biota 3 where you had rooms of these people, you know, in, in formal kind of lecture rooms, I guess, where they would have taught chemistry or mathematics and all sorts yeah. of, kind of tiered uh, stadium seating, as That's they say. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, I couldn't be there either. But through this period of time, and I mean, in terms of no late through that period of time, I was traveling, meeting with VR installations. I actually got to meet Douglas Rushkov after years of corresponding with him. And he wrote an article that was syndicated about my work at the time mm-hmm. in 20 plus publications worldwide, which basically threw me back in the Bay Area. And also through this period of time, I met, you know, my childhood hero, Steve Wozniak, who took an interest in overlap over that period of time. Crunch Crunch I met actually when I was 18. Crunch I met prior to this period because he was coming through Australia. He was very much doing the Australian journey that you've just returned from. Right. You know, going to the festivals and meeting the people and what have you. And yes, he stayed with me for a 
a couple of days in Canberra, Australia. I mean, Crunch is one of these people who maybe through just massive quantities of people, he finds people at interesting periods. Um, and I certainly, yeah, yeah utilize that opportunity as so well. So then we, t- for the Lebanese owners, uh, these conferences were meant to break out the artificial life movement, which had really kick-started in the early 90s with a lot of press publicity of people trying to build little, sort of the digital alchemists, trying to build creatures and trying to look at biological behaviors and stuff. And there was this whole initial apocalyptic idea that, you know, this is the time of the Terminator movies. So, (laughs) you know, are they building Terminator 2 or Terminator 9000 or something Mm. like that? And and there was this whole really sexy high-tech feel to it. And it was the time of the Biosphere 2. Certainly. And multimedia. You yes. know, finally, people could see more than just a few pixels on computer screens, you know, in 1990, 91, 92. It was before the web. Yeah. And uh, so I went to Artificial Life conferences, I think ALI 6 or mm. I, I can't remember, 4, I think. But that was already in the throes, I think, by 6. Mm. I'm not sure. It was one of the artists that was connected with Biota gave quite a strong review that this is getting, this is becoming too much like old science. Yeah, and, and so at, at Artificial Life 6, no, Artificial Life 1, which was, I guess, in, was it 89 or something? Yeah, like, something it, like that. And it was yeah. at, at, held at Lawrence, Lawrence uh, Los Alamos National mm-hmm. Lab, and it was sounded like one of the greatest meetings, and Steen Rasmussen mm-hmm. gave a reprie- reprieve of it, or a redux Certainly. of it at Artificial Life yeah. in, in, in Denmark. And it was like this incredible thing of Murray Gelman and, and, you know, the, the theorists like Derek Kaufman mm-hmm. and, uh, sort of philosophers and chemists and computer science types and roboticists and whatnot mm. thinking, you know, can we make things that have real emergent behavior, real yes. biology, uh, sort of biology inspired into digitology? And it was super high charge. It was like Earth to Avatars was. Yeah, certainly. My conference on Avatars, it sort of brought the communities together for yes. the very first time. And then, you're right, by by the 90s, it was devolving into <laughs> really bad academic presentations yes. and not a lot of vision. So the visionary component of A-Life was going, was yes. disappearing. And so why I started the Biota, starting with Digital Burgess, was Biota 1, was let's go back. And how do you do that? You go to an actual library of early evolution, which was the Burgess Shale, Certainly. which is this half a city block long quarry that's, that's, that's of shale in the Canadian Rockies that if you pull a page out of it, mm. you can see perfectly preserved fossils of about 535 million years mm. age right after the body plan emerged. And yes. And so we would get very inspired by hiking up, you know, getting up at five in the morning and taking all these 60 people up there yes, uh, with a camera crew and going and looking at an active paleontological field season run by Des Collins. And, yes. and then we would come down and we'd be so inspired, we'd go to the visionary sense. So we mm. had the Tom Rays and Carl Sims and the artists and the philosophers and the real paleontologists, who Certainly. Yes. the detectives, and we at the Banff Center. And so to kind of kickstart this thing again and yeah. back into a visionary visionary sort of large perspective, because going to a fossil quarry a half a billion years old gives you perspective. Certainly. And for me, it was, you know, during the, the twists and turns of the, the remaining three biota conferences, 
uh, it actually generated enough juice that I could go on and do the Evo Grid. Yes. I had enough contacts, and the whole thing was the the mythical initial event that mm. led to the Evo Grid, the Genesis Engine idea, and all the work I'm doing on Origin of Life, the couple of phases model and stuff like that. That really got kick-started, so it was worth investing Certainly. in doing that event because the people I met, you know, in and, and 2001, I... After it was two years after bio, Digital Biota 2, I actually got to go to Richard Dawkins' house yes. in Oxford and have yes. tea yes. served served by his wife, who was the <laughs> Doctor the Who assistant. Doctor Who assistant from the one the Doctor Who with the long Tom Baker. Tom Baker's yes. and uh, you know have be served tea and yes. uh, talk about creating an international competition for yeah. lifelike emergent digital systems and yes. Dawkins being quite interested in that and whatnot. So, I mean, this is a tremendous. Yes. Two, two vignettes I wanted to add to this. Yeah. In terms of my own experience through this period. Um, when I was developing artificial life back in Australia, it was very much when I was developing no blank, it was very much an old technology, very old technology because I could get it relatively cheaply and also in that environment, you learn how to maintain the technology, which mm. I guess is part of the Digibarn. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Well. You, know, you could take an old computer and make it live for a lot longer. In 2003, I was living in the UK and in this area, actually, where there was a bog maybe half a mile down the road where they'd found a prehistoric king buried mm. in this uh, area. Preserved so, in yeah. bog. So in you bog. have this wonderful kind of vignettes associated with history. And at that time, I was contacted by two engineers at Apple that were interested in taking Noble Ape and utilizing it as a processor metric, the eight brain cycles per second, because the cognitive mm. simulation within Noble Ape had developed into this thing that they saw as being mathematically curious enough that they could get processor optimization through oh, okay. it. Okay, so they could use it yes. to... Do processor up? They could. They had a quantifiable number that said if they changed certain things in the code, they could actually get a higher number out. So it was a quantifiable so number that they the, could use. The, the years when Apple was going to multi-core. So yes, or... this was the G three, G four, G five oh, period okay. for your super nerd listeners. Yeah. And through this period of time, it struck me that something that I had developed on XT and 6800, like really old first-generation computers, mm. was now being used by Apple. And then within two years, because Apple outsourced their that whole thing to Intel, mm. both Apple and Intel had teams that were using Noble Ape in order to, you know, optimize their processors. And then so, they jumped to the Intel processor. Yeah, so, yeah, so the team actually left Apple, was picked up at Intel, but Apple still internally and also to third-party developers did demonstrations of Noble Ape. Mm. So if you look at the multi-core processors that we see now, Noble Ape was running on those multi-core processors. They give me the code back occasionally because it's open source and they just have N representing the number of processors. So I'd never know how many cores they were actually running right. on through this period. Right. But um, it's interesting, the Dawkins element, I wanted to return to that a oh, little bit okay. as well, because he created a lot of positive energy initially through it. And then, as many people do through this movement, became kind of disenchanted with the movement to the point where the the Douglas Adams talk appeared on the Biota site and has been kind of a central focal point. Every towel day, people descend on the Douglas Adams okay, talk. They right. listen to the audio. They're part of that. But, yeah, there was an interesting shift through that period of time as well because kind of Dawkins kind of took ownership of that. And then in his book, um, what was it, The Cod Delusion? 
Mm. He kind of missed the reference because there was kind of toing and froing over that um, period. He talked about he was at a conference in ninety eight, but it was actually oh in ninety nine, but it was in ninety eight. Oh yes, yeah, ninety eight. Yeah, but he talks about Richard Richard uh, Douglas Douglas Adams. Yes, mentioning something about yes. People standing up. And it was over that period of time. Yeah, so you have all these kind of curious toings and froings. I think the thing about these ideas is that they've kept people empowered for periods of time. But the thing that I find interesting Mm -hmm. associated with your own journey is really what has happened in the past couple of years associated with you moving. Like, you see, you see biota, you see these things very much in the past compared to what the biology means going forward. Like, the notion of computer simulations are no longer really part of your general mm. narrative. Mm-hmm. The Evo grid almost was a divorce for you in terms of moving away from... Like, it has historical reference. But going forwards, you see the the organic systems as being the place where computation into the origin of life, as a kind of broad term, mm. can be done in, in, you know, in better ways. And I think I still... It's interesting what happened with the biota community in the past few years, because there are people such as yourself that have gone off in different directions. There's a bunch of folk that have formed startups or gone to work for companies like Google. But it's almost like Biota is in a dormant period, aside from a couple of us that still are, you know, rapidly <laughs> fascinated within the power of computation. Mm. And I thought an interesting topic, potentially for the Levity Zone listeners, was talking about how two people that have followed, kind of joined at a, at a point, followed the same path. One has wandered off, but one is still following computation. Right, right yeah. And... It, Certainly, I mean, my own motivating thoughts associated with this come through the period of time where you were building the EvoGrid, mm. through your PhD period, and in particular um, through Peter Newman, who's a kind of salt-of-the-earth fellow, long-time system administrator, programmer on the EvoGrid, uh, mm. just a kind of salt-of-the-earth person in, in Melbourne, Australia. Mm. He's been your technical support, I guess, mm. for so many years and was so instrumental through the EvoGrid period. And certainly by the end of the Evo grid, in fact, the year that I came and met with you here when I was traveling with my brother was just at the point where the Evo grid was wrapping up. The PhD was being finalized and you'd grown kind of disenchanted with computation. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of introducing it to the audience? Yeah, that's um, so initially we'd done 10 years of work, nine, eight, nine years of work for NASA Uh 25 projects. I always use this number 25. I actually counted them up. There were 25 funded projects from NASA and other space people. Mm. And I thought I was turning 45 at the time. I thought, oh, bloody hell, you know. (laughs) Um, Chris Langton talks about being the oldest PhD recipient in the world at Mm. age 39. Yeah. I thought, I'm already, you know, if I'm going to get going and get into to proper science or science proper, not just yeah. doing technology work. And I need to actually get going. I need to get the PhD, get the training, all that sort of stuff. Mentorship, that whole process, that whole, yeah. it's not really a hazing process, but yeah. it can be. <laughs> and so at age 47, I found the program and I had wonderful, I thought, well, we can use our, our leftover NASA money Peter's skills. Initially, I thought I would write some of it, and mm. that went out the window pretty quickly. And I really had dreams of creating a virtual world, like I had the dreams in the 70s of doing this, um, which would have a chemical automata, <laughs> to use your term, yes. uh, which would end up doing the emergence thing. Mm. 
And I'd started this in 1985 at USC on a VAX 11750 on the ARPANET. Yeah. I'd started working on this, and it was not going to happen because there was no colleagues and yeah. no literature and no field. Yeah. And I thought, now I can finally get around to this and build a rich environment where open-ended evolution can Certainly. happen in digital yes. forms. Like Tom Ray and Tierra always talked Certainly. about, yes. um, he never got open-ended uh, emergence because there yeah. was no organs. There were no separate components. It was just Certainly. a string. Yeah. It was just strings, and there was he knew that there would be limitations. So I had all these dreams. I mean, I, I dreamt up systems. I dreamt up architectures and flow models, and, and I have pages and pages of notebooks full of this. But as I entered the process, I realized um, not only didn't I, I had insufficient time or computing resources, this is a massive project. Yes. So I then uh, gradually, as PhDs do, they whittle you down and focus yeah. you down, and I started throwing things off, casting them away. Good to be clear, this is a computer science PhD, right? Yeah, but what I wanted to do always was to try to use real tools of simulated chemistry. Mm -hmm. So open source tools like Gromax, mm -hmm. for example, that do molecular dynamics. So the argument I made to myself was, do I do a completely artificial world? Mm. Because the problem with completely artificial worlds is lessons learned there may not be applicable mm. to help science solve the problem of the origin of life in chemistry. Because if you're too far into the abstract... Mm. You can, don't... We, can we dive in there? Because you talked about chemical automata, and it's something that I return to frequently. Mm. Because when you describe a purely artificial world, you can still take elements of the real world, and I guess this is still the computational simulation aspect, that you're not trying to model absolutely everything. You're trying to model something which is mm. poorly understood, very poorly understood, yeah. but relates to interactions between molecules and chemistry, which is pretty well known in terms of the individual interactions, maybe not over time or how these things come together. And I think the idea of chemical automata was taking a reduced chemistry. A little bit like permutation exactly. city, Greg yeah. Egan's model. Exactly. Yeah. But from that, certain things can be built. There are certain assumptions that are made. But it becomes a distinctly more solvable problem mm -hmm. than, you know, broad end. And I think this is this is probably the extreme that the Evo grid in terms of the general discourse. And for folks listening in, there are podcast recordings, tens of hours of podcast there recordings <laughs> associated with this musing. But the thing that struck me about Chemical Automata was that through that, some of the stuff that you came up with, particularly associated with ratcheting and the whole kind of ramping and the building from that, mm. may have come to you slightly faster in the Chemical Automata world mm -hmm. in terms of these Definitely. things. And the, the time associated with these things in terms of discovery Interesting. But anyway, you, you concluded with a distinctly different approach. So, so I, I really went to the point where we could build something that would be more procedural, that would be less computationally wasteful, mm. and we could see a whole lot more phenomena. I remember talking to gray thumb people in these period mm. uh, about they were, they had all the, the beautiful fantasy of building a world with phenomenal emergent properties. Yeah. And I, through standardization. I mean, their model was fundamentally on one side open source through a standardized interface, but on the other side, you can create whatever crazy simulation you want yeah. just so long as it communicates through this membrane. Right. And, and then I thought, you know what? I really, when I was 14 and walking out in the sagebrush hills yeah. around Kamloops, I wanted to work on the problem of the origin of life. Yeah. And I watched all these plants growing in the springtime. 
And then I realized, you know, this is molecules self-assembling to make machines that can copy themselves, mm. which is a hard problem, mm -hmm. you know, starting de novo, just starting from the basic things. And in my head, on this walk came this molecular machine appeared in my head. It was my first Gedanken experiment, my oh. first thought experiment, oh. which I talked about in the TEDx talk mm -hmm. last week. And it was moving, and I couldn't understand what it was doing. But I thought, I'm going to work on this problem for the rest of my life. Yes. That was, that was the commitment. This is 1976 or something like that. Yeah. And so I went back to that vision and said, no, I have to stay really close to the chemistry. I, despite wanting to see beautiful things happening right away, this goes back to, um, to Will Wright's talk <laughs> at NASA, where he said, I also wanted to do a simulation de novo of mm. the chemistry to see emergent phenomena, except that as a game, it would be very uninteresting. Mm. You'd, you'd go for weeks without seeing anything going on, even mm. though that would be the truth. Mm -hmm. So I went and did Spore, yes. which was the procedurally run yes. artificial world that would be gameable and be marketable. Um, so he had that same passion. We had yes. this one dinner together and, and so the Evo Grid was born with the idea that, okay, we're going to start by simulating frames of a thousand atoms moving around with very low energies. So it's a little bit, it turned out to be like cosmochemistry, mm -hmm. the chemistry between the stars where almost nothing ever happens. When I explained this to Stuart Kaufman years later, uh, you know, in through the PhD, almost at the end, he said, oh, you're doing a hypopopulated reaction graph. Yeah. Very few reactions occurring. Certainly, yeah. It was an experiment Stu had wanted to do for yeah. years. And so I I went back to basics. I went back to the Institute for Advanced Study. And with Freeman and Pete Hutt's okay, I got to go in and put the white gloves on and go into Robert Oppenheimer's files on the ECP, which mm -hmm. was the electronic computer at Princeton. Certainly. And go through von Neumann's files on this first von Neumann machine. Yes. And Baricelli's files Certainly. on trying to use this von Neumann first real modern computer, all the British would argue with us about this, mm -hmm. um, to uh, do a lifelike simulation, which he called the symbio-organism. Yes. Long before Conway's Game of Life, yeah. and long before Wolfram. Yeah. And, uh, and I read his reports. The, these reports went to the army because they were the thunder. Yes. And I handled his punch card deck, yes. you know, very carefully, um, and went through it. And his arguments, like, oh, I couldn't make a large space mm -hmm. for my simulated automata Certainly. organisms. He claimed that there were true emergent behaviors happening. Yes. Uh, because I had to break it up into small frames, and then I had to simulate those frames a uh, frame at a time. Yes. And I realized, doggone it, it's 2008, 2009, I have to do the same thing in a modern yes. computer. So we're still running von Neumann computers. Well, this is where it's interesting because, I mean, certainly my... And we probably need to state this to your listeners. The purpose of Noble Ape is not to create the origin of life mm. in, in you know, computer simulation. Noble Ape is a social simulation. It's about understanding why certain populations go to war, what happens to genetic characteristics over, you know, warfare, mm. what happens associated with language in areas where food is plentiful. There are a series of kind of eclectic elements in the Noble Ape simulation which aren't to do with the origin of life. But the thing that has captivated me and continues to captivate me to this day 
is the nature of writing simulations that are ideally suited for the technology in which the simulation is run. And what I find fascinating through the early developments, these early simulations that were developed, was that that science, that methodology, that means of exploring computation wasn't yet there. Because computation had just come on, it was just available. Yeah. So the efficiencies within that, looking at how you could actually take a biological simulation and model it more efficiently in terms of how you actually change the mathematics. And if you think about, if you run a simulation with two chemicals that are moving over periods of time, they have certain random wonders and what have you, but the events are associated with their interaction, either interaction with space or their interaction with each other. And if you stop moving in a DT mm. and move D event, you actually change the way the simulation is calculated, but you get basically the same results for less computation. Mm. And certainly through Noble Ape, in particular working with engineers, brilliant engineers at Intel, who had kind of devised this notion of atomic processing where you took the processing concepts and then you divided them and moved them between the processes. And now reactive programming where you basically mm -hmm. take large buses of data and you work out how you can, you know, do traditional computation but do it in a completely different way over, you know, vastly complex systems, multi-core processes, multiple multi-core processes. If you start rewriting your simulation based on computation and start looking at how you change the mathematics, the simulated properties for the computation, then you get amazing quantities of power which just don't seem okay. to be... Mm -hmm. so. My frustration through the Evo grid was I was at the I didn't have a language yet for this. I'd seen this through my time working with the Intel engineers, but I was still myself trying to find a way of translating that. And at the same point, the Evo grid was attached to Gromax, which an amazing package, but still had flaws and wasn't really the right package for what you were looking to simulate. Mm -hmm. So you're getting fractional processing benefit from what you could have gotten in terms of a, a relative rewrite. And I think this is the interesting thing when you take traditional biologists, traditional physicists that come to this and just start writing code as they would write formulae, then you don't see the underlying power of, of contemporary oh. processing. But if you start rearranging it and start making it more so you're, you know, minimizing the heat cycles and maximizing the processing <laughs> cycles, then you start seeing things which are fundamentally science fiction. I mean, it's fundamentally fantasy within that space because it's very difficult to talk to the general public associated with how this processing is is working and it's interesting actually because is in my conversations with bruce i thought i've really got to come to the bay area i've got to be a part of this evo grid thing i've got to do this this be a part of this intellectual movement because obviously i have bits and pieces to share associated with this and the thing that brought me to the bay area with in no way giving a corporate plug to this was working for netflix and working with engineers that are in this space associated with systems and server architecture and how do you get the most processing out of these architectures so well bruce has gone off and found found refound biology and worked with amazing people i mean david deemer untouchable and clearly taken you a kind of a completely different but completely wonderful exploration i've come here to work for netflix and then found the intellectual sparring partners mm in order to take the ideas that I had taken for simulation and just talk more associated with optimization and how you actually utilize the power of computing. And unfortunately, it's a conversation that's kind of gone in two different directions. Like the, uh, the fellow that you have to answer 35 exactly. questions before you can speak to him. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. he, he wants to optimize his interactive time, and that's the easiest way to do it. But it's interesting, actually, because I think, I still think through 
the breadcrumbing of the Eva grid. Hmm. There are elements there that are very valuable and insightful. And one of the benefits of being your advisor on your PhD was the tens, if not hundreds of hours of audio that were yeah, kind of captured through this process. And I remember that the, so as I was moving toward trying to get more and more faithful to the way physics works or biology works and realizing it's stochastic, it's probabilistic. So most of the computation done in, in the real world results in nothing. Yeah, it's throwaway computation. It's throwaway yeah. computation, which engineers hate, yeah. you know, because they want to see results in their lifetimes, you know, yeah. and who's to blame them. So in my PhD process, I, I was winnowed down. I was sort of forced into a corner because what am I showing by building this? And you have to do it in a finite amount of time. Finite amount really of time. finite amount really, of time. I wanted to finish before I was 50. <laughs> I started when I was 47. And in the meantime, the UK was undergoing a financial crash. Yes. And the the program got basically all its de- defunded at the University in London. And then University College Dublin picked it up and we moved to UC Dublin. Yes. And I had to make, I had a wormhole to go through because the way that bureaucracies work, I knew the law. The law was if you're in the final phases of your PhD, write-up mode, <clears throat> at the, the institution that you were leaving and your supervisor was taking you, they had to accept you at that level. Yeah. So I, but that would be only a limited period, like a few months yeah. So I realized I have to finish this and write it up. And we had been running the simulation in the barn, in the Digibarn, Certainly. on six discontinued digital space servers. Yes. They were burning up. Yes. So they, and there was tractors moving, enormous yardage of, while I was running the simulation, it was a hot summer, tractors were digging up the roads here. I was keeping the power on for those guys. And we ran three experiments, Peter and I, in the barn, <laughs> And the machines were just being destroyed by the conditions. Yes, certainly. And the three experiments showed that, yes, you can do millions and millions or even billions of frames of these these bouncing ping pong balls, Mm. simulated atoms, and tease out a few bonds. Mm -hmm. The few bonds would form, and it was how you selected the next frames to do. Mm. So the whole EvoGrid was a search engine really looking for initial conditions that would form bonds between these bouncing ping-pong balls and then restarting those mm. experiments and going to try to climb the next level. You know, let's have four molecules formed instead of only two. Mm. Running out of computational steam, Yes, uh, John Graham, who worked for uh, UC San Diego, a burner friend of mine, saying, oh, I'll build you a network. But that network didn't come up till January. So yes. January, we get all this computational power suddenly, boom, overnight. We can put our Debian installs there and we can... Certainly. And then I realized as I was moving to UC Dublin, doing all my own paperwork, I've got to shoot through this wormhole, two wormholes, the, the bureaucratic wormhole mm-hmm. of an institution that will start, you know, imposing course requirements on me if I'm around too long. Yes. And clamp down their bureaucratic talons. Yes. Or uh, and and start charging me six thousand euro for a yeah. quarter, yeah. You know, which is you know it starts to get and and Ireland was about to ready to go off the financial cliff, yes, as well, yes, and and the the experiments, the three experiments, which showed a really basic result that if you do selection and restarting, you you can go up the curve and find a rich 
uh, volume. So, yes. But it does not. If I had real examiners, yes. like a real mathematician, a real computational guy, yeah. they would say that's a trivial result. Exactly. So I wouldn't be able to defend. <laughs> yes. You know, it looked like a nice curve, but it was the only curve I had. So yeah. Peter and I literally, we ran this thing 24-7 on 30 cores. Yeah. And I remember in March, about the middle of March, getting desperate because we were showing not really any any trend yeah. in the forming of these bonds. And I said, Peter, okay, let's turn off, let's turn on all the demons, shut down this experiment number five, and let's do uh, a, a random, i.e. a stochastic hill climb. Yeah. As Peter had recognized, we're doing stochastic hill climbing. Yeah. But let's tweak it and tweak it to the point where we go to a maximum, which is, we got... 12 bonds formed. So, yes. And then we allow a lot of degradation off the search from that maximum. Yes. And we don't try to do every future frame, but we randomly pick future frames. Yes. Because otherwise you get into an NP incomplete computational yeah. space. And, but we, we allow quite a bit of degradation. Yeah. So we, we, we will we'll run simulations that only have five bonds for a long time because in the hopes that we'll go along a ridge and then climb to and hit a next again yes and it worked and by you know april fool's day it was oh we've just succeeded 79 which is our previous record yes and then by april 15th we saw this first two staircases yes where it was reaching the maximum going along and and climbing it was open-ended by may 8th when the the dissertation was due Mm -hmm. i'd run all these Excel spreadsheets of numbers and plotted it all out. We had six or seven staircases. We were already into the, you know, 100 bond territory, well over that 120. And uh, because the computation was just enough to to explore the space. And I remember I I got the thesis in on time, put my back out. You know, for six months I had back pain. This is what you do. Don't advice to listeners: do not do your PhD when you're 49. You know, yes. you put your back out when you're writing eight, you know, 18 hours a day. Um, and then by the time I was on the train uh, to Montpellier to the Certainly. to the Origin of Life conference, the final numbers were coming in. Yeah, and we'd sequestered half of the bonds in the volumes, like half of the atoms were in bond in, in in bonds. Yes. And there were multiple staircases, and you could even see a, a pattern in the rise of, you know, Terence would call it, you know, like novelty or complexification yes. or yes. whatever it was. And then it then it topped out, and we I realized that we're, we're probably, it'll take a long time to get to that next maximum. We've used half the atoms. Yes. And we've created this fairly dense matrix. Yes. And another fellow showed up and built a WebGL. Yes, certainly. Three interface yeah. just lost to see yeah. and fly through Miro I think was his name. Was his Miro Karpish? Miro Karpish, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and fantastic. From, if, if I can interject here, my perspective through this, because I was doing a variety of other things, but actually acting as an advisor, was looking at periods of time you gave me bug reports. Yes. Or Peter gave me bug reports. And I would say, you really need to fix that one. You really need to fix that one. That one needs to be fixed. This one is probably costing you a lot of computation. And I think it's interesting, actually, because from my perspective, a number of those problems would have been solved by a computational physicist if you had one mm. available. Mm-hmm. And really, the, the, the folks that you had assembled were visionaries and motivating you in a visionary sense. But from a computational perspective, 
And I unfortunately just didn't have the cycles myself to assist. But I was trying to promote, it's very difficult when you come to it from a kind of traditional software engineering view that these mm-hmm. are serious bugs, mm-hmm. which are potentially causing results which are moving in different directions, <laughs> basically moving you away from, you know. And we were crashing exactly. all the time. Yes, yeah. no. And these kind of frustrations, yes, the crashes, you're right. You've, you've refocused me on exactly <laughs> the problems. And my perspective would have been these are the things that need to be addressed to actually utilize some of these aspects. And I actually, through the use of Gromax, it struck me that it, after a period of time, it was just the wrong simulation. Mm-hmm. But you had no time. We had no so time. So you had all these kind of... <laughs> and my perspective is, and certainly for folks who are interested in this kind of work, there were lots of points where you had no time and areas weren't ex- explored. It was like you were traversing a maze and you made a series of turns, which I, in reflection, and even at the time thought... This is getting more and more dangerous. Like the likelihood that you'll actually get to a result in the fine amount of time is kind of working against the yeah. the computational problems. But I think it's a still a space that is fascinating and in merits further scholarship. The decision that you came to sitting at the park bench, realizing that you'd invested all this time and only gotten so far, I think indicates probably that others could easily invest could. time and probably find different results, make different turns. And, and get to, but the thing that struck me is because certainly within the biota community, you've historically been the biota community. I mean, in terms of you have been the kind of visionary that's gone around and talked to people and gotten people excited. And then you have independent developers such as myself that are kind of naturally excited in this area and still finding wonder and still kind of exploring various areas. But what happened when at the conclusion of the kind of formalized PhD proceedings associated with Bruce Damon now is talking actively that computation isn't the way forward, that we need to start moving to mm. biological mm-hmm. systems. I think there were so many elements in that. And in fact, you came to talk at Netflix maybe a year and a half ago now. I think so, yeah. um, and I, at that point, I think there was a period at the end of the discussion. This is available by video, folks. You can get it through YouTube, a variety of different sources where you wanted to do our usual playful banter associated with computation versus biology. But they had, by that point, I think I'd done it with you two or three times, and I thought, I'm just going to give Bruce some respect here and allow him to present this talk. But I certainly feel, if you ask what the biota community is now, it's a huge quantity of historic resources. Hmm. But there are still individuals that are still plugging away. Hmm. And it's interesting because when I bring uh, this one, for example, uh, the philosopher, um, when you bring people in, you say, what, what perspective? How do we restart Boda? How do we get people who are just coming through university currently? Because there's a constant wave of college students coming through, having exactly the same miscreant ideas that you and I had at various points. Right, like, right, what, right. How do we get these people reinvigorated with the notion of computational simulation, the perspective that, you know, there's an amazing amount of power and wonder and vision and historically, you were always the person who was going around talking to people about this periodically. But now it's talked about in a kind of historical perspective as someone who's still doing the work, who's still interested and fascinated by, you know, social evolution and all these things within computer simulation. But also there are very few people don't understand how powerful contemporary computation is. Mm -hmm. That as an idea is kind of failed, you know, Kurzweil, as a as a proponent for the technical singularity, no longer really talks about it. It's very similar to Dawkins and Artificial Life. And I think there's a need for, and maybe your listeners have someone such as this out there, there's a need for a new visionary to come mm-hmm. in 
and to take on some of these challenges. But one of the beautiful things through the Evo group was just the number of people you met with. And on one side, there were kind of follower folk who were just interested in kind of tagging along. But the likes of Freeman Dyson, mm. I mean, in terms of a polymath who is just like traverses a series of points of time and continues to have a unique and insightful perspective. 92. Yeah. I mean, these are the kind of people, these are the people who need to invigorate communities still. And I thought there was kind of some kind of opportunity that was lost through the kind of conclusion of the Evo grid for all the folks Mm -hmm. that were still Mm -hmm. doing this kind Mm -hmm. of stuff, that they needed a similar kind of visionary. And in my own perspective is I, I like to be like technically there. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, I'm not the guy that's going out and, you know, meeting Freeman Dyson and these kind of things. And certainly my my sense of the Evo grid as a thing was, for a period of time following, it was like, well, everyone with Bite has gone and gotten day jobs, and, you know, yeah. what's happened to this whole thing? It's almost like the band has broken up, basically. But I think the ideas within it are still very powerful and very important. And, you know, there's what's happening now, so there's an arc to this thing, where when I came to Netflix to do the talk, mm. the arc had moved on from the Evo Grid, which was just a discovery of an optimization technique mm. for for computational simulation. Certainly. The arc had moved on to sitting at the park bench in Montpellier just a week before defending the thesis, mm. getting depressed that I couldn't get farther along, and then suddenly having this vision of basically party balloons squeezing being able to be filled with reactant, real Mm. physical fluids, uh, reacting for a time and then being tilted and moved in an automated way that you could have computers operating like a robotic system, operating trillions of real chemical experiments. So that instead of trying to simulate molecules, you're actually just running microfluidic or nano drop or Mm. millions of real chemical experiments. Just don't get into the game of simulating the computation for mm-hmm. for chemicals, just let the chemicals do the walking. They can simulate themselves in real time, but then create computer vision systems, high, what we call high-performance screening, mm. to look at what the chemicals just did and decide how to flush out the system and restart it. And mm. that was the, the Genesis engine. So a marriage, a hybrid marriage of nature uh, and computation and the human mind so the human mind is using heuristic techniques to design, you know, uh, sort of teleologically oriented uh, goals for, well, we'd like to see membrane formation in, in the experiments. Let's try to tweak it so we get there. Mm. Uh, then the, the computer is doing the walking through stochastic hill climbing, but the, the chemical is doing the computation, the, the basic computation. So that was this idea, and I created a book project, which mm-hmm. you're part of, uh, which got delayed and delayed, and then the series editor got fired, and then I canceled the the project. And I realized that this idea is too soon. This mm. is probably a decade too mm. soon. And I've only recently met one other group building this technology, which is Lee Cronin at University of Glasgow, mm. had the same vision pretty yeah. much, and we're working together. So then that that second part of that arc is this incredible vision for how to build a hybrid system that, that harnesses nature mm. and computation in appropriate in, in, in appropriate proportions. And then I went to the next stage, which was doing thought experiments, like when I was 14, of the molecular systems themselves. So 
reading a few papers, or even before I knew the chemistry, going on a long flight to China, mm. putting on my Bose noise-canceling headphone, drinking terrible coffee, and mm -hmm. listening to my space music, my trance music, mm -hmm. and for three and a half hours going into the molecular storm. Yes. And... Uh, long flights are very useful for that kind of stuff. Long flights are useful. <laughs> and bad airline coffee. Yeah. United makes some of the worst coffee in, no, in the what, airlines. What United they... is, is it's a history of flying dating back to the 60s. So if you want a 1960s flying experience, you fly, you fly United. United. The food hasn't changed in the past 30 years that I've flown United. The same, yeah. Same people, so they're same food. Reliable. <laughs> so in that three and a half hour trip, if you will, I filled a notebook full of drawings mm. of I'm now um, inside a membrane which is on a rock surface and it's covering a, a nanopore mm. and it's tear it's torn off and as the membrane tears off it encapsulates the contents that were in the pore mm. and this is a deep hydrothermal vent scenario that I was running in my head and that thought experiment was so powerful I mean so emotionally compelling and powerful because I would s pause the thought experiment draw things go back in and it would have moved on. I, as soon yeah. as I re-entered the space, it would be like in cold water and dark. Yes. And I'd have to say, what is going on? And then the the trip or the whatever it is would say, I'm showing you how sexual reproductions started. Mm -hmm. And then these vesicles were shattering and the membranes were forming again. And there were things attached to the membrane mm. that then got reincorporated into a second vesicle which then went back through the cycling water back up toward the surface. And it was now going along the surface again. And there's this cycling. And then I met Dave Deemer. And mm. I'd, I'd met him just casually before Certainly. that. Yes. And so then with collaboration, the thought experiment. So I, I actually produced a poster of that. The poster was at Montpellier. Mm -hmm. So even before the... Um, I call it the crater model, mm -hmm. but the, even before defending the thesis and before really properly working with Dave, I put the, a poster together mm -hmm. for the, I had two posters at that meeting. But um, and then Dave basically said some really good ideas here, but wrong venue. Mm. Take a look at our wet drying cycles on surface yes. volcanic springs, because here's what can happen in those layers that I was depicting on the rock surface synthesis of you know basically nucleic acids and, and amino acids could can happen here's how the chemistry works so i relocated my thought experiment there and then a year and a half later in december of 2013 uh i the final thing came into my head i went through the final thought experiment which is how the little vesicles couple back to the dry phase by simply the pond dries out. Mm. And they dump their contents back into the channels of lipid that are the bathtub ring, mm -hmm. and then they're resynthesized, and it's a closed system. Yes. And that various polymers will be selected, the Kaufman's tools, Kaufman's molecular screwdrivers will be selected, and the whole system will lift to living, to a living system. Yes. So instead of starting with RNA world or you know, metabolism first, or even, you know, Dyson's double origins. No, no. This is a simultaneous lifting of all the functions of life. Yes. Very, very powerful model, which became the coupled phases biogenesis model. So here's where the arc, so that's the other end of the arc. So now we put that through a year of peer review, presentation at four international conferences in the SETI Institute, mm -hmm. you know, in publication, 
uh, and now my mind is going back to the digital. So it's like here's a physical system that experimentally needs to be tested in the next 50 years. So now how do we take all that we know about the genesis, what you can do with something like a Genesis engine, high-performance screening and nanopore sequencing that's mm -hmm. coming in. Because Dave is one of the co-inventors of nanopore sequencing. Yes. And nanopore sequencing is a revolution. You know, the min-ion from Oxford nanopores in his lab. Yes. That means you, you, a piece of DNA or RNA or really any, any polymer, any ribbon molecule that comes against the, this nanopore, you know, that are stuck in these membranes. It will wiggle its way through yeah, and run a through. yes, and run a clicker, yes, which changes the potential across the membrane, which allows you to tell count, you know, base pair for base pair. Yeah, this is like bringing the digital from from it's it's bringing the analog to the digital directly. Yes. So if we have if we build a Genesis engine with millions of channels of experiment, they're simulating the coupled phases. They're simulating those cycles, and we even have a drying cycle. We have a chamber built with microfluidics that dries down, and we actually are simulating those ponds, that, that Archean you know, hydrothermal spring. We're simulating that in a chip, and we're drying it down, and we're doing the whole thing. We can actually do the digital. We can talk straight to the computational system because we can, we can say, in this, we wet, we wet the, the container... Mm -hmm. We got a trillion compartments with random polymers. We counted them individually, the actual vesicles, down one channel with computer vision, just counted them. We, we measured their size. We measured how many of them survived in terms of stable, in terms of shear forces. Mm. We introduced shear forces, how many of them popped and did not. We, we used like almost like a, a chemostasis thing where we dump the, the waste contents off. So we're doing natural selection. And then we come into another phase where we're going to literally do high performance screening of those, those polymers mm. to find out what they are. Yes. So then we use the nanopore minion. We wiggle through those things and we dump those, those polymers back into the dry phase and let them resequence. Certainly. And we could actually build a machine that could drive to a second genesis in the lab. But it's a pure combination of digital technology, digital slash analog conversions, and the power of this massive evolutionary system. So, yes. so that that's sort of the other, the final piece of the arc is how to come up with a crystalline definition. So this is the next phase of the work that I mean, you could even be involved with is, is defining a digital architecture. For building Processing all this information. Uh, yeah, yeah, and so we met with a guy from Google, mm -hmm. and this guy at Google is putting all of Google's resources behind he, any kind of genetic work. They just donate. Google donates everything. Certainly, yes. He's a super smart guy. Yes. Um, he lives part of the time in Santa Cruz. And uh, the problem we have right now is we don't have a ton of data. He yes. like So... To build a Genesis engine, to build the first stages of this, to find a funder that would allow us to uh, to test the coupled phases experiment in the next 50 years or hopefully in the next 20 years uh, and show that this is a viable pathway to life, that would be a big result. And it turns out that my neighbor in New Jersey is the head of 
painkiller research and morphine. Mm. We talked about morphine earlier uh, at Glaxo. Yes. And I showed him this design, and he said, uh, well, I don't really care about your origin of life objective. That's mm. the hardest problem to solve in molecular biology. Certainly. What I care about is the fact that this is a search engine exactly. for chemistry. Yes, and certainly. I can put a, a pharmaceutical, I can put a chemical model of a pharmaceutical that Glaxo wants to make here, and your machine, push a button, will find the best pathways, the reaction pathway to make that and the highest yields yes. in the least amount of time. And I said, "Is what is that worth to Glaxo to have this? And he said, we would put a billion dollars into that to get yes. that capability. So if next year, 2016, if I can sort of work it and work, I need to get collaborations with really good computational people with mm-hmm. really good chemical and microfluidics or whatever technology it is, people, if I can create that design and then come up and to a person like him, I'd like to initiate that so that in 20 years it'll exist. Yes. That box will exist that we yeah. can license or use or get an old version, an old throwaway version so we can, Yes. in my 70s, I'll be able to use it with, with the material that we'll collect from space. So the idea is to Shepard gets funded. Mm-hmm. This is the grand arc. 2036 is my target. <laughs> Shepard gets funded yes. by Elon Musk to go out and get resources and fuel and stuff in the solar system. But along the way, we beg them to please bring us back this particular asteroid, which is 4.1 billion years old. Yes. It's late heavy bombardment material. It's a consolidated rubble pile, which means the astronauts can sample it all over you know, maybe robotics, but mostly again, bring it to lunar orbit, which is a NASA's original Certainly. thing that came out of my work in 2007. Yes. Bounced off another guy and now is getting canceled, yes. of course. Brought in-house, which means getting canceled. Yes, ARM. long, slow death. Right? Long, slow death. <laughs> and so we have that material, this late heavy bombardment material full of amino acids and nucleobases and fatty acids, the right material that was in the deep freeze since the Archean that was raining down on those oceans and those islands. Yes, yes. And then we have our simulation chamber or our Genesis engine ready, and we can use that 1,000 pounds of rocks to, to, to put into the experiment to get a viable analog for the early Earth and then run the experiments from the viable analog. Certainly. Or be able to synthesize yes. analog and then... By the 2050s, maybe show that this is a viable pathway to life. And so all of that is my grant. But the computational engine that's built around this will produce this hybrid computer. You know, they'll end up in the DigiBarn in the year 2100. (laughs) But this hybrid natural, uh, you know, analog, it's really still digital. Yes. But this, where nature's embodied in a digital system, that will be an example, an exemplar of a new type of computing for the 21st century, which uses the power of nature inside the computer mm. to, uh, but and uses the computer for all the power that it has. And who knows what, you know, using nature as a computational engine at the lowest level. And so that, that would be by the end of the 21st century, the, a huge driving trend in computation, which would lead to things like spaceships that can repair themselves, for example. Yes. So where the physical elements, um, you know, probably less hard parts and more soft parts and, and fluids and stuff, 
where the entire physical uh, elements of fluid, fluid flows, life forms in there, not life forms, chemistry happening, material science happening, and the computational matrix that it's within are unified as one thing, mm. as a single thing. And so the 20, 22nd century computing is this incredible hybrid of, of all of it. So it takes the next great leap of computing beyond von Neumann because you have this solid black mass Certainly. that's shaped like a shoe or something. Yeah. And the whole thing, every atom is part of the system. You know, it, so 23rd century computing, you know, for, for the enterprise, you know, <laughs> to, have, to have that lady's voice that mm. says, uh, says coy things to Spock. I mean, that's what we need is this black slab. That's 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 a complete hybrid. Every atom's at play. Yes. So that that's my that's the long tail of my arc and how I coming. I'm now coming back toward artificial life. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of things that are thawing for folks listening, in, Bruce had to turn off his refrigerator in order to record this, and we hear kind of creakings coming from the refrigerator. Refrigerator is threatening us. Yes. So let's round this thing up. Can I do some shameless plugs here for uh, for podcasts and yep. things of this nature? So, for me, part of this has been podcasts, part of bringing a community together, the biota recordings, these kind of archives. And I've floated recently, in mm-hmm. the past couple of weeks, a daily podcast, which I'm recording and putting out there, mm-hmm. which really, when I started podcasting about nine years ago, I produced a kind of incidental daily podcast. And it's called Short Funk. So for listeners that have survived this long, <laughs> shortfunk.com uh, to get my daily podcast. I record on a weekly basis with a futurist linguist called Heron Stone mm. in LA, uh, who's, uh, I think he's 68 now. Similar to my discussions with Bruce, but with a different perspective and someone who actually was in Manhattan Beach in the 1960s. And that is uh, noblape, N-O-B-L-E-A-P-E.com, which is the project we've discussed periodically through this conversation. Uh, noblape.com slash stone uh, mm. for Stone Ape. Mm-hmm. And for folks who might be levity zone listeners and also model rail enthusiasts, <laughs> my the thing that I'm best known for in this broader community is taking the ideas that I worked on through Biota, associated with live calling, getting people excited and talking, and moving to another kind of simulation, model railroading. And model rail radio exists as a thing in and of itself, coming very much from this artificial life community, very much from this biota community that Bruce started, but taking it to a completely different topic and allowing a community to grow organically. And it's it's huge, right? It's 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 unbelievably big. It's big. <laughs> it's go to any city, any small town in the US <laughs> and pretty well all over the world and you will have listeners. In fact, the thing that I found coming to the Bay Area was just discovering how many listeners were local. Mm. Uh, we've passed a hundred shows. Each of the shows are about three to five hours long. The hundred show was nine hours long. Uh, we had about 50 people come through the house. We had about an additional 40 people come to various dinners. Uh, and these and are just locals. When you arrive in some country, there are all these people waiting <laughs> exactly. for you. Yes. yes. I have to allocate days to spend for this. Model, model railways for the uninitiated, you call them uh, layouts, right? Layouts, yeah. And they're in usually people's basements. But the thing is that a large number of scientists and engineers and these kind of people that spend their day jobs in these, you know, in, in scientific worlds... Typically, also, the correlation between these people okay. and model railroaders is very high. Because model railroad, for those, is miniature trains. 
going yes. around on tracks and it's they're electric powered mm-hmm. and there's incredible diversity and complexity and they're they're up to 100 years old right some yeah these, more than 100 years old some yeah. of them are steam powered some of them are electric there are a variety of different ways of doing it tiny but, coal engines. exactly yeah <laughs> oh, no. but it's just it's just a world in and of itself so i previously wasn't a model railroader i was part of this artificial life thing but yeah i thought what what can i take this format to right and right. have a community explode around it and later today we're going to see a layout yeah. here in boulder creek which yeah. is the way it happens and the thing the thing with model rail is uh, amazing is the physical dexterity to and switching mechanisms oh, yeah. and and it's really uh you know the basis the 19th century basis for sending telegraphs to keep trains <laughs> from colliding head-on yes on single track yep. rail which is most of it and and the the informational technology of 19th century rail networks was was the leading edge absolutely and, your trains used to be the computers of uh, of the past basically. and my yeah. cousin at university of montreal is a computer scientist he's more of a math- mathematician he did his PhD thesis in the 60s on um, the Montreal Rail Yard mm. optimization mathematics for queuing the trains into the various parallel tracks. Yes. And he came up with the optimal queuing, which is now used by railroads. Railway, it's railroads. all re- relay-based as well. Yeah. So all the switching is relay-based. It has a, like a thunk sound. <laughs> Which is, uh, even to this day, you know, universally recognized in terms of computation with relays. It's amazing stuff. It's amazing. So, uh, you, you go from the most advanced Noble 8 simulation running on <laughs> 64 cores, where the thunk sound is not, not heard, but yes. is still happening because you're deciding to shunt over to another core and another bunch of memory <laughs> cache to optimize or to burn out the CPUs, you know, to, to max out the CPUs. And you've gone all the way back to these physical analogs of coils and metal switches that move up and down. These magnetic coils. Yeah, Yeah. and and the the nerds of the 19th century. One of the people I wanted to talk about at TEDx, Mm -hmm. but I had no time in nine minutes. I had a couple slides on Isambard Kingdom. Oh yes, yes. Because it turns out Julian Knott, who's our team member on Shepherd, Mm -hmm. he sent me his grandfather's badge from the Exeter and Bristol Railway. Mm. He was he was uh, an accountant mm-hmm. working for uh, Brunel. Oh, yes. And so I had this badge, and Br- Brunel created the first modern rail system and the first... Amongst a variety of other things. Shipping. Shipping and... Bridges, and yes. The, the, the enormous yes. stations for the public, and incredible genius. And I was going to contrast him with Elon Musk, mm-hmm. being pot- potentially the, the Brunel of the 21st century. Yes. You know, revolutionizing electric personal transportation and, you know, pneumatic tube, hypercycle, whatever the hyperloop thing, plus, uh, of course, SpaceX and stuff like that. He's the IKB of the the 21st (laughs) century. So there's where our our link, again, a wonderful link between you and I is I I rediscovered this incredible story of railroads. And going to space, a railroad to space. Of course, you know, yeah. You couldn't have run railroads across America without water, refuel, resupply, and wood, or coal, or yeah. something. Yeah, And uh, that's what the Shepard thing is, which is designed to go out to get the asteroid to help us open space, but to solve the problem of the origin of life. Anyway, it's a huge, wonderful, ongoing conversation with you, Tom. Yes. Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's one of the benefits that once you start playing in these areas, you realize how little you know, yeah. how much you need to learn, and how you it'll never stop. 
Like there's starts. a new window, a new vista, a new lack of knowledge in a particular area, and you've got to just dump in boots and all. Always a pleasure, Bruce. You're Always most a pleasure. welcome. And uh, <laughs> I think that, that wraps us up for... We can enjoy the beautiful Sunday. Hour and 16 minutes. This has been another extraordinary, an extended and extraordinary edition of the Levity Zone with Tom Barbelay. We go back for many a day. <laughs> we shall return and take it easy.